All right, this is my first attempt at something I've wanted to do for a long time, and that is um, help people discover the life and work of John Newton. Um, some of you may have heard of him at least regarding the fact that he's the author of the song Amazing Grace. Uh, some of you may know a little bit more. You may have watched the movie, which was not very accurate, but still, nonetheless, a, maybe a fun movie to watch, I suppose. Um, and uh, so, uh, but other than that, I'm finding that a lot of people, even Christians, who appreciate the song Amazing Grace, don't really know much more about John Newton. Um, from time to time, maybe a kid kind of heard his uh, storybook story in Sunday school. Um, if you grew up in uh, the right kind of environment, might have heard that, but... Um, I would say that I've never discovered a more helpful, dead pastor. Um, and so I just want to share him with you. Um, and hopefully he'll just be as much of a help and blessing to you as he has been to me in pointing me over and over and over and over and over again to Christ and the gospel. And so um, I'm going to make an attempt of just doing uh, different episodes where I'll read portions of a very short um, uh, autobiography um, with maybe some commentary. Also uh, begin to read to you some of his letters and quotes, other things that people have said about him. And um, I'm doing it as both a podcast and I'm going to attempt here doing the video. And the only reason the video is um, because for some reason there are those who I meet who only seem to watch things on YouTube or Facebook or, or whatever the other platforms are now. Um, I prefer podcasts. It's a great way to listen to sermons and doctrine and teaching um, and not be as visually distracted. Um, but on the same hand, if I can attract more people, not again, uh, again, not to me. Um, in fact, I don't really like this. I don't like seeing myself on camera here. I'm not used to that, but... Uh, um, and I pray that it's not that I'm wanting people to know me or notice me or praise me. Um, honestly, if the first few maybe were to have such a help to someone in regards to um, doctrine, the doctrine of God, the doctrine of salvation, uh, that they were so they became so in love with with Christ and what He's done for them that they never need to listen to this again, and that they begin to pursue Him with all their heart. So. That said, let me kind of get started on my first attempt here. And so the first thing I want to do is just read a very um, short breakdown of who John Newton was um, uh, from the book Out of the Depths, uh, the autobiography of John Newton. You can get that. Kregel, K-R-E-G-E-L Publications has republished that, uh, reprinted that recently. Um, pretty well done. And um, you can also get that on Kindle. You can actually also get it on um, uh, Audible and listen to it by Blackstone Audio. Very well read, very well done if you prefer that. So I would highly recommend doing that if you want to get out ahead of me. But let me just, be, let me just read the preface of the book then, which gives a breakdown of who uh, Newton was and see if we can pique your interest uh, uh, going forward here. So this is just a brief biographical sketch. John Newton was born in London on July 24th, 1725. So just let that sink in for a minute. What little bit you might know about history or maybe a lot, but uh, 1725. He came to occupy a unique position among evangelicals at this time. No doubt the romance of his younger days, as well as the force of his character, made him the well-known leader he became. Newton's mother was a devout woman who filled his mind with scripture, but she died when he was only seven. I'm thinking about my seven-year-old boy right now, Cohen, and uh, the limited amount of influence I've been able to have, have on him and uh, just trying to imagine him suddenly not having a mother or a father. And that was the case with John Newton. After two years of schooling, during which he learned the basics of Latin, he went to sea with his father. So, um, nine years old, to sea. 
His life out on the deep sea was associated with vivid dreams, sailor recklessness, and remarkable escapes from death. Gradually, he became an abandoned and godless sailor. His father had a heavy heart over the infidelity of his son, who at one time was flogged as a deserter from the British Navy and for over a year lived half-starved and ill-treated in abject degradation under an African slave dealer. But God, who suddenly confronted another blasphemer, Saul of Tarsus, was about to display his amazing grace in the life of the sinful sailor. I want to pause there and just be up front through the letters and biography and teaching of John Newton. You'll see him highlight many, many places in the Word of God that teach what I believe is such an important truth, and that is that God's salvation of Saul, as was just mentioned here, you know, knocking him off his horse and blinding him, was not some unusual way of salvation in this sense. It's always God that saves miraculously. God gets all the glory. He does all of the work. He seeks and saves that which is lost. Man does not seek after God. And John Newton never forgot what God had done in seeking and saving him. And so, indeed, God shows his amazing grace to John Newton as he has done to me and as he will do for all of his sheep. One day, John Newton read Thomas Akempis's Imitation of Christ. This sowed the seed of his conversion, which he so vividly describes in his autobiography. At 23 years of age, 23, still pretty young, while steering a waterlogged vessel in the face of apparent death, he came to realize his deep need of God. From 1748 through six years, he commanded a slave ship, and in a moment of revelation, turned to God as he graphically recounts in Out of the Depths, this book. Growing in grace, he forsook his sea life, and for the next nine years he experienced rich and profitable fellowship with renowned revivalists such as John Wesley and George Whitfield. With a thirst for learning, Newton studied Hebrew and Greek and became a gifted author, giving to the world his Olney hymn, O-L-N-E-Y, well worth looking up. And through the different episodes of this, I would uh, read the different some of the different hymns to you. Uh, those were written with the poet William Cowper. Omicron letters, O-M-I-C-R-O-N letters, and Cardiphonia, C-A-R-D-I-P-H-O-N-I-A, Cardiphonia, another book, uh, which Dr. Alexander White kept on his selectest shelf of spiritual books. I have not read the entire Cardiphonia, but I have dabbled in it, and wow. And there's a reason I've only dabbled in it, because you have to stop and meditate on every, every other line. Doubtless, it was his lifelong friendship with William Cowper, the renowned poet, that stimulated his own poetic gift. In 1780, Newton was appointed rector of St. Mary Woolnoth Church in London. So 1780, alongside the Bank of England in the heart of the metropolis. For over 20 years, this church was the center of great widespread evangelical movement. His piety, zeal, warm heart, and candor gained him the friendship of the reformer William Wilberforce, who was influential in ending the European slave trade, who through Newton's influence led the movement, as it says here, I got ahead of it, uh, led the movement to abolish slavery. In 1805, John Newton's sight failed him, and being unable to read, he was pressed by his friends to retire. But his reply was, What? Shall the old African blasphemer stop when he can speak? Two years later, on December 21st, 1807, John Newton went to be with the Lord, whom he loved and so devotedly served. So I hope that will pique your interest, and I'll do some more things here. I wanted to read a couple of quotes. I would highly recommend this website um, called uh, Grace Gems. Uh, gracegems.org G-A-R-S-E-G-A-R-A-C-E Gems, J-E I'm spelling everything wrong G-R-A-C-E 
G-E-M-S, gracegems.org. And you can look up John Newton here. You'll read about many other uh, very important characters in church history there. But gracegems.org, look up Newton, and you can read a lot of his letters if you don't want to buy the books or you don't want to buy other uh, publications by him. But I would highly recommend that. So here's a couple quotes from Newton. I aim to speak plain truths to a plain people. One of the other reasons why John Newton uh, is my favorite is because he loved the common man. He wasn't out to get a name for himself, and that that um, it, through his biography, you'll see that that's the case. He loved regular people. So I'm getting. I'm, I've got to quit interrupting. I am. I aim to speak plain truths to plain people. May it please the God of all grace to accompany my feeble endeavors to promote the knowledge of his truth. If my letters are owned to comfort the afflicted, to quicken the careless, to confirm the wavering, I will rejoice. John Newton. You know, I I identify with all three of those uh, adjectives. Afflicted at times, careless at times, wavering at times. And that's why uh, John Newton is probably one of my favorite pastors of church history. He was a pastor of pastors, and he's been a pastor to me in a sense through his writings and his letters, his hymns. Um, Here's another thing that he says. Heart anatomy is my favorite science. I mean the study of the human heart with its workings and counterworkings as it is differently affected in the different seasons of prosperity, adversity, conviction, temptation, sickness, and the approach of death. I aim to speak plain truths to a plain people. John Newton. So, you know, he was so aware of the weakness of the flesh and the human heart, and he was so gentle in that. Um, Many of you may have sat under pastors who, from the pulpit, seem to always put on the same air, the same confident air, uh, and, and almost as a confidence in themselves and their performance, and they expect the same of you. Whereas John Newton was very, um, very realistic in remembering his own weakness, always, always looking to Christ and turning those that he taught and uh, wrote letters to to Christ. Um, one other one here says, My grand point in preaching is to break the hard heart and to heal the broken heart. And that is so true of him and so true of what preaching ought to be even now. Indeed, there's a place for um, hard preaching and and, uh, the, the raising up of God's law for the purpose with which it was given to be a mirror, to be a schoolmaster, to be a a measuring guide to show that all men are condemned. All men have fallen short. Um, all men's heart, hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked. And so there is a place for preaching to bl- break the hard heart, but there's also a place for recognizing those whose hearts have been broken by their sin. And they, as the thief on the cross, have now recognized through the work of the Spirit that they deserve to be here, as the thief on the cross said. And their hearts are broken over their sin. And John Newton is probably one of the best historical examples of a pastor who always remembered that. A couple of things, uh, a couple of quotes that other people have said about him. Again, right off of Grace Gems, you can look these up here. Charles Spurgeon, who you may recognize, said this, In few writers... Are Christian doctrine, experience, and practice more happily balanced than John Newton? Few write with more simplicity, piety, or power. Then William J. What thousands have derived repeated profit and pleasure from the perusal of these utterances of the heart? Nor ever will they cease to be found a means of grace while God has a church on earth. And again, that has been the case for me. Uh, They have been um, a wonderful means of grace to me. 
Uh, and lastly, Alexander White, for myself, I keep John Newton on my selectest shelf of spiritual books. By far the best kind of books in the whole world of books. So let me just, uh, let me just make sure you got that because you can still get them. You can still get them. Put down the remote and get some good books from old dead guy. I can recommend more, but this is my favorite. Um, get some good books while you still can. Uh, again, by far the best kind of books in the whole world of books. Why would you not be interested? I'm not sure. All right. Um, so there's some quotes about Newton. I want to read one last quote so that I can read you a song that is one of my favorite songs that he wrote. Okay, and so hopefully that will also help you see what kind of pastor he was. But he said this, When we first enter into the divine life, we propose, we propose to grow rich. God's plan is to make us feel poor. Let me say that again. This is Newton. When we first enter into the divine life, we propose to grow rich. God's plan is to make us feel poor. Let me uh, read this song to you that John Newton wrote. It's called, I Asked the Lord That I Might Grow. Some of you may have heard this before. Some of you may not have. You can look it up online as well. Sovereign Grace Music has published their own version of it. Um, so here it goes. And just listen with me, and, and especially in light of that just quote I just read. Here's what he says. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. So again, I hate to interrupt the song, but since we're not singing it here, let me remind you, he said, when we first enter into the divine life, we propose to grow rich. In other words, we do what he said here. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. And we, we do ask those things. And then here's what John Newton said in verse 2. "'Twas he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair." So first he gives the credit, even in prayer, to God. As John Newton always gave the credit to God in his salvation, and an oft-ignored and, and mis, uh, misinterpreted line just in the song Amazing Grace, is when John Newton says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." He understood that it was a gift of God that he ever, ever even feared God, that he ever even feared God. You're going to see, if you'll hang with me through this, or if you'll do your own research on John Newton, you're going to see that there was time after time after time when he stood practically side by side with another ungodly man, maybe less ungodly outwardly than John Newton himself, and yet the other man was killed in front of him. I remember a reading, and I'll get this hopefully right, but in this book that you'll hear out of the depths, a time when John Newton was uh, in a big storm on the ship, and as he was coming up uh, the ladder to help on deck, I suppose, um, the captain, I believe, asked him to go back down for a knife, and as he did, a man passed him on the ladder, and as soon as he arrived on the top of the deck, a wave washed him off the deck. Why him and not John Newton? John Newton understood that it was God's grace. John Newton understood that it was God's choosing of him, and he never forgot it. And so he understood that it was God who taught him thus to pray and ask for help and ask for faith and love and every grace. But, he says, it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Has not that been the case with you if you're a believer? That as you've asked to overcome certain sins or certain weaknesses in your life and ask for more faith and more grace, you expected that the answer would come just because you prayed it and, and maybe because uh, overnight, just, just suddenly in some favored hour, as he says, and subdue your sins and give you rest. And the rest of the Christian life would be 
ease, flowery beds of ease, as the song says. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand, it seemed, intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, humbled my heart, and laid me low. So Newton here is, is saying, God didn't answer the prayer in the way I thought he would. Instead, I saw more and more of the evils of my heart and the weaknesses I have and the felt like the angry powers of hell were assaulting my soul in every part and it almost seemed to be God's own hand aggravating my woe crossing all the fair designs I'd schemed just every plan I had put in place the lists I'd made the resolutions I'd made the plans I'd made to, to serve God in my own way were were crossed as he says were were uh, crossed out, were um, thwarted, much like Moses in scheming to, by his own hand, uh, deliver the people from the children of Israel. God humbled him. God must do that. So Newton then says, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? And here's the answer. "'Tis in this way,' the Lord replied, "'I answer prayer for grace and faith. "'These inward trials I employ "'from self and pride to set thee free "'and break thy schemes of earthly joy "'that thou mayest find thy all in me.'" And so Newton began to see and put here pen to paper, for us to read later that God answered that prayer by bringing him lower and lower and to see his own pride and self that tries to save himself and trust in himself and forgets the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who laid down his life, who, who brought us out in the first place and who will bring us all the way home. And so I wanted to share uh, that quote and that song with you. And then lastly here, I want to go into one of uh, John Newton's letters just randomly. Um, later, if this takes off and this is an interest to, to more than one person, <laughs> that one person being myself, then I'll begin to read so out of some of the volumes. I've got four giant volumes of Newton's letters. All of them are wonderful. But let's check this one out, John Newton's letter to a, to a friend um, regarding man in his fallen estate. Man in his fallen estate. What is man? What is man? Here we go. Dear sir, we hear much in the present day of the dignity of human nature. And we hear much of that today. It is allowed that man was an excellent creature as he came out of the hands of God. But if we consider this question with a view to fallen man as depraved by sin, how can we but join with the psalmist and wonder that the great God should make any account of him? As David says, what is man that thou art mindful of him? Fallen man, or fallen as man is, from his original state of happiness and holiness, his natural faculties and abilities afford sufficient evidence that the hand which made him is divine. He is capable of great things. His understanding, will, affections, imagination, and memory are noble and amazing powers. But view him in a moral light as an intelligent being incessantly dependent upon God, accountable to him, and appointed by him to a state of existence in an unchangeable world. Considered in this relation, man is a monster, a vile, base, stupid, obstinate and mischievous creature no words can fully describe him if you doubt John Newton's words here please just go read Romans chapter 1 man with all his boasted understanding and attainment is a fool so long as he is destitute 
of the saving grace of God. His conduct as to his most important concerns is more absurd and inconsistent than that of the most contemptible idiot with respect to his affections and pursuits. He is degraded far below the beast, and for the malignity and wickedness of his will can be compared to nothing so properly as to the devil. Again, please go read in its entire context, Romans chapter 1 and chapter 2, and see that Newton is being nothing but biblical here. Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2 is often uh, broken up into to pieces as if when uh, a, a, a pastor or a preacher is reading the parts where it's describing men who have done things that he's never done, then it's as if he is saying that, well, you know, man is bad, but not, but there's some real bad people who do these kind of things. And usually the other pieces of the list are ignored rather than reading Romans chapter 1 as a description as it is of who man is and who man was in Adam in the fall. And John Newton never forgot that. The question here, Newton goes on, is not concerning this or that man, a Nero, but concerning human nature. In other words, he mentioned a really wicked man that everybody knows is bad. But concerning human nature, the whole race of mankind, the few accepted who are born of God. Do you hear, you hear what he said? The few accepted who are born of God. We'll get back to that. There's indeed a difference among men, but it is owing to the restraints of divine providence. Okay, did you hear that, what he said? There is indeed a difference among men, but it is owing to the restraints of divine providence without which the earth would be the very image of hell. We like to think that there's something great and special about America or something because we have done X and we have done this and we have done that. We have picked ourselves up by our bootstraps. There's such a pride in American, the American version of evangelicalism. But do you hear what Newton is saying? There is indeed a difference among men. Yes, you can find some that uh, are doing or have done much worse things outwardly than other men. But Newton here is saying and teaching us um, again that there is no that there is indeed a difference among men, but it is owing to the restraint of divine providence, God restraining men. I often say to those I love that, you know, especially when we hear people talk about how bad it's getting, I try to help people see that this is man's free will run amok. This is man's free will without God's divine providence restraining it. And I would actually say, no, God's divine providence is still restraining it. Or it would be to pieces overnight and there wouldn't be a soul left on earth as we would all devour each other. All right, I better let Newton speak for himself. A wolf or a lion while chained. Man, he just says so many powerful things. A wolf or a lion while chained cannot do so much mischief as if as if, as if they were loose. But the nature is the same in the whole species. Do you believe that about human nature? It's biblical. Education and per personal interest, fear and shame, human laws, and the secret power of God over the mind combine to form many characters that are extremely decent and respectable. And even the most abandoned are under a restraint which prevents them from manifesting a thousandth part of the wickedness which is in their hearts. But the heart itself is universally deceitful and desperately wicked. Have you only been in an environment that, that says amen to that verse in Jeremiah 29, I believe, the heart being deceitful and desperately wicked, but that you always refer to that as the people out there. Have you ever seen that that's your own heart? And that if not chained, as he, as he says here, like a lion, um, would be undescribably evil in its actions. All right, continuing on. Man is a fool, he said. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. Romans one twenty two. He can indeed measure the earth, 
and almost count the stars. He abounds in arts and inventions and in science and in policy. And shall he then be, be then called a fool? The ancient heathens, the inhabitants of Egypt, Greece, and Rome, were eminent for this kind of wisdom. They are to this day studied as models by those who aim to excel in history, poetry, painting, architecture, and other of human genius, which are suited to polish the manners without improving the heart. I always say to my kids that. Um, Andy Griffith and Leave it to Beaver helped America learn even better or worse how to be good without God. They're deceiving themselves to think that they're good without God. Polish their manners, as Newton says here. But their most admired philosophers, legislators, logicians, orators, orators, excuse me, and artists were as destitute as infants or idiots of that knowledge which alone deserves the name of true wisdom. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, ignorant and regardless of God, yet conscious of their weakness and of their dependence upon a power above their own and stimulated by an inward principle of fear, and I would say, look up Hebrews, I believe it's 12 verse 2, or excuse me, 2 verse 12, um, or maybe I believe it's Hebrews 2 verse 2, 15, describing man as always as slaves in fear of death, and Newton here is bringing that out, stimulated by an inward principle of fear of which they knew neither the origin nor right application, they worship the creature instead of the creator. Yes, place their trust in stocks and stones, and I would say masks and vaccines in the world that we're in right now, in the works of men's hands, in non-entities and chimeras, in acquaintance with their mythology or a system of religious fables or Fauci science or whatever the thing of the day is passes with us for a considerable branch of learning because it is drawn from ancient books written in languages not known to the vulgar. But in point of certainty or truth, we might receive as much satisfaction from a collection of dreams or from the raving of lunatics. If, therefore, we admit these admired sages as a tolerable specimen of mankind, must we not confess that man in his best estate, while uninstructed by the Spirit of God, is a fool? But are we wiser than they? Not in the least, until the grace of God makes us so. Again, from the lips of the man who wrote the song that you sing, Amazing Grace. Our superior advantages only show our folly in a more striking light. Why do we account any people fools? A fool has no sound judgment. He is governed wholly by appearances and would prefer a fine coat to the deed of a large estate. He pays no regard to the consequences. Fools have sometimes hurt or killed their best friends and thought they did no harm. A fool cannot reason, therefore arguments are lost upon him. At one time, if tied with a straw, he dares not stir. At another time, perhaps he can hardly be persuaded to move, though the house were on fire. Are these the characteristics of a fool? Then there is no fool like the sinner, who prefers the toys of earth to the happiness of heaven. Oh, that's like a knife in my heart the toys of earth to the happiness of heaven, who is held in bondage by the foolish customs of the world and is more afraid of the breath of man than the wrath of God. We're seeing that again. We're seeing that in those who claim to be gods. They, they go to churches. They're members of upstanding churches in the community, but they are more afraid right now of the breath of man than the wrath of God. Let me not interrupt him too much. Again, he says, man in his natural state is a beast. Yes, below the beasts which perish. In two things he strongly resembles them, and looking no higher than to sensual gratification. And in that selflessness of spirit which prompts him to propose himself and his own interests as, proper and, as his proper and highest end. But in many respects he sinks sadly beneath them. Unnatural lusts, and the lack of natural affection toward their offspring are abominations not to be found among the brute creation. What shall we say of mothers destroying their children with their own hands? Can we say abortion? Or of the horrid act of self-murder, the rise in suicide? 
Men are worse than beasts, likewise in their obstinacy. They will not be warned. If a beast escapes from a trap, he will be cautious how he goes near it again. And in vain is the net spread in the sight of any bird. It's right out of Proverbs he's quoting. But man, though he be often reproved, hardens his net. He rushes upon his ruin with his eyes open and can defy God to his face and their damnation. Again, I would just challenge you as he's describing, man, if you are going, yep, yep, that's them out there, that's them out there, that's them out there, and you are not aware of the inclinations of your own heart and the rescue that perhaps God has made that you can only give him glory for, I dare say you may not understand and know the grace of God. Once more, he goes on, let us observe how man resembles the devil. There are spiritual sins, and from these in their height, the Scripture teaches us to judge of Satan's character. Every failure in this description is strong in man, so that what our Lord says to the, said to the Jews is of general application. You are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. Man resembles Satan in pride. This stupid, wicked creature values himself upon wisdom, power, and virtue. And we'll talk of being saved by his good works, though if, can, if he can. Satan himself need not despair. He resembles himself, or he resembles him, he resembles Satan in malice. And this diabolical disposition often proceeds to murder and would daily if the Lord did not restrain it. He derives from Satan the hateful spirit of envy. He is often tormented beyond expression by beholding the prosperity of his neighbors and proportionally pleased with their calamities. In other words, happy when, when people fall, when people fail, when people have calamity. Though he gains no other advantage from them than the gratification of this rancorous principle. Have you ever seen that in your own heart? I have in mine. It grieves me. What is it in our heart that would secretly rejoice when someone else falls. He bears the image, likewise, of Satan and his cruelty. This evil is bound up in the heart of even a child. A disposition to take pleasure in giving pain to others appears very early. Children, if left to themselves, soon feel a gratification in torturing insects and animals. If left to themselves, as he said. What misery does the wanton cruelty of men inflict upon the cocks, dogs, bulls, bears, and other creatures, which they seem to think we're formed for no other end than to feast their savage spirits with their torment. We form our judgment of men when they seem most pleased and have neither anger nor resentment to plead in their excuse. It is too evident, even from the nature of their amusement, amusement whose they are and whom they serve. And they are the worst of enemies to each other. Think of the horrors of war, the rage of duelists, of the murders and assassinations with which the world is filled and filled. And, let, and then say, Lord, what is man? Further, if deceit and treachery belong to Satan's character, then surely man resembles him. Is not the universal observation and complaint of all ages an affecting comment upon the prophet's words? Trust not in a friend. Put no confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of your mouth from her that lies in your bosom, for they hunt every man his brother with a net. How many have at this moment cause to say with David, the words of his mouth were smoother than butter, but war was in his heart. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn by swords, or yet they were drawn swords. I hope you stop and meditate on those things. I have commented too much, but what deep words he's drawing out here. Again, like Satan, men are eager and tempting others to sin, not content to damn themselves. They employ all their arts and influence to draw as many as they can with them into the same destruction. Lastly, in direct opposition to God and goodness, in contemptuous enmity to the gospel of His grace, and a bitter persecuting spirit against those who profess it, Satan himself can hardly exceed them. Herein indeed they are his agents and willing servants, and because the blessed God Himself is out of their reach, they labor to show their despite to him in the people of his people. Okay, They labor to show their, their despite to him in the people of his people. I have drawn but a sketch, a few outlines of the picture of fallen man. 
to give an exact copy of him, to charge every feature with its full aggravation of horror, and to paint him as he is would be impossible. Enough has been observed to illustrate the propriety of the exclamation, Lord, what is man? Perhaps some of my readers may attempt to deny or extenuate the charge and may plead that I have not been describing mankind but some of the most abandoned of the species who can hardly who hardly deserve the name of men. But I've already provided against this exception. It is human nature I describe in the vilest of most and most profligate individuals cannot sin beyond the production of one apple besides the nature of the tree upon which it grew, as certainly as if I had pronounced a thousand. So in the present case, should it be allowed that these enormities cannot be found in all people, it would be a sufficient confirmation of what I have advanced, if they can be found in any, unless it could be likewise proved that those who appeared more wicked than others were of different species from the rest. You might have to go back and read that again on Grace Jim. You might have to... Um, uh, go back and listen. There was a lot said there, but he is he is making the case that if your if you if your defenses are raised when he describes the nature of man or, or the, the how evil man is, he he is saying it is the nature your nature. But I need not make this concession. They must be insensible indeed who do not feel something or feel something within them so very contrary to our common notions of goodness, as would perhaps make them rather submit to be banished from human society than to be compelled to disclose their fellow creatures every thought and desire which arises in their hearts. Many useful reflections may be drawn from this unpleasant subject. We cannot at, at present conceive how much we owe to the guardian care of divine providence that any of us are preserved in peace and safety for a single day in such a world as this. Live where we will, we have those near us who both by nature and by the power which Satan has over them are capable of the most atrocious crimes. But he whom they know not restrains them so that they cannot do the things that they would. When he suspends the restraint, they act immediately. Then we hear of murders, rapes, outrages. But did not the Lord reign with a strong hand such evils would be perpetuated every hour and no one would be safe in the house or in the field? God's ordinance of civil government is one great means of preserving the peace of society, but this is in many cases inadequate. The heart of man, when fully bent upon evil, will not be intimidated or stopped by gibbets and racks. And honestly, I don't know what those two words meant in Old English. Uh, I, I think that they are uh, gibbets and racks. I think the rack he's speaking of uh, actually being um, locked down by by torture um, devices and things used in, in jail. Um, and he's saying, when bent upon evil, there's nothing that can stop a man. How wonderful is the love of God in giving his son to die for such wretches. And how strong and absolute is the necessity of a new birth if we would be happy? Do you see how necessary a new birth is? And I would just say, I would just ask you this question. What did you do to be born the first time? And what can you do to be born the second time? Man can do nothing to save himself. Can beasts and, and devils inherit the kingdom of God? The due consideration of this subject is likewise needful to preserve believers in an humble, thankful, watchful frame of spirit. Such we once were, and such with respect to the natural principle remaining in us, which the apostle calls the flesh or the old man, we still are. The propensities of fallen nature are not eradicated in the children of God, though by grace they are made partakers of a new principle which enables them, in the Lord's strength, to resist and mortify the body of sin so that it cannot reign in them. Yet they are liable to sad surprises. In the histories of Aaron, David, Solomon, Peter are left on record to teach us what evil is latent in the hearts of the best men and what they are capable of doing if left but a little to themselves. 
Lord, what is man? The nature of fallen man agrees to the description the apostle has given us of his boasted wisdom. It is earthly, sensual, devilish. I have attempted to some general delineation of it in the preceding portion, but the height of its malignity cannot be properly estimated unless we consider its actings with respect to the light of the gospel. The Jews were extremely wicked at the time of our Lord's appearance upon earth, yet he said of them, If I had not come and spoken to them, they had not had sin. That is, as the light and power of his ministry deprived them of all excuse for continuing in sin, so it proved the occasion for, uh, of showing their wickedness in the most aggravated manner. And all their other sins were but faint proofs of the true state of their hearts, if compared with the discovery they made of themselves by their pernicious opposition to him. In this sense, what the apostle has observed of the law of Moses may be applied to the gospel of Christ. It entered that sin might abound. If we would estimate the utmost extent of human depravity and the strongest effects it is capable of producing, we must select our instances from the conduct of those to whom the gospel is known. The Indians who roast their enemies alive give sufficient proof that man is barbarous, barbarous to his own kind, which may likewise be easily demonstrated without going so far from home. But the preaching of the gospel discovers the enmity of the heart against God in ways and degrees of which unenlightened, unenlightened savages and heathens are not capable. Not capable. By the gospel, I now mean not merely the doctrine of salvation as it lies in the Holy Scripture, but that public and authoritative dispensation of this doctrine which the Lord Jesus has committed to His true ministers, who having been themselves by the power of His grace, brought out of darkness and into marvelous light, are by His Holy Spirit qualified and sent forth to declare to their fellow, fellow sinners what they have seen and felt and tasted of the word of life. Their commission is to exalt the Lord alone, to stain the pride of all human glory. They are to set forth the evil and demerit of sin, the strictness, spirituality, and sanction of the law of God, the total apostasy of mankind. And from these premises to demonstrate the utter impossibility of a sinner's escaping condemnation by any works or endeavors of his own. And then to proclaim a full and free salvation from sin and wrath by faith in the name, blood, obedience, and mediation of God manifested in the flesh, together with the denunciation of eternal misery to all who shall finally reject the testimony which God has given of His Son. Though these several branches of the will of God respecting sinners and other truths in connection with them are plainly revealed and repeated, repeatedly inculcated in the Bible, and though the Bible is to be found in almost every house, yet we see, in fact, it is a sealed book, little read, little understood, and therefore but little regarded, except in those places which the Lord is pleased to favor with ministers who can confirm them from their own experience, and who by a sense of His constraining love and the worth of souls are animated to make the faithful discharge of their ministry the one great business of their lives, who aim not to possess the wealth, but to promote the welfare of their hearers, are equally regardless of the frowns or smiles of the world, and count not their lives dear, so that they may be wise and successful in winning souls to Christ. If you're a pastor trying to figure church out these days, I, I would say that indeed, just like he, he describes, the Bible is sealed, little read, little understood. I go and interview kids, church kids, all the time and speak with them, and they do not know God's Word at all. Nothing of it. They know some Bible stories, but they don't know God's Word. They don't know the Gospel. They don't know the whole grand story. And that is because I think there are very few, very, very few, very, very few in these days, ministers, who, as he says, can confirm them from their own experience. Their own lives are still full of pride. They're, they're, they cannot acknowledge the grace of God and salvation. They, they, they credit themselves and their decision that they made when they were 
but a child perhaps. But they've never tasted the grace of God that Newton speaks of here towards the wretches that Newton speaks of here that we all are. We need God to work and give us more ministers, more pastors like this who, like it says, aim not to possess the wealth of their people but to promote the welfare of their people who count not their lives dear. When the gospel, in the sense of the word, first comes to a place that the people are going on in sin, they may be said to sin in ignorantly. Paul described himself that way. They have not yet been warned of their danger. Some are drinking down their iniquity like water. Others more soberly burying themselves alive in the cares and business of this world. Others find little time for what they call religious duties, which they persevere in, though they are utter strangers to the nature or pleasure of spiritual worship. Partly, as thereby they think to bargain with God and to make amends for such sins as they do not choose to relinquish. And partly because it gratifies their pride and affords them, as they think, some ground for saying, God, I thank you I'm not as other men. That's out of Luke 18, if you didn't know that. You ought to check that out. The preached gospel declares the vanity and danger of these several ways which sinners choose to walk in. It declares and demonstrates that different as they appear from each other, they are equally remote from the path of safety and peace and all tend to the same point, the destruction of those who persist in them. At the same time, it provides against that despair into which men would otherwise be plunged when convinced of their sins by revealing the immense love of God, the glory and grace of Christ, and inviting all to come to Him, that they may obtain pardon, life, and happiness. In a word, the gospel shows the pit of hell under men's feet and opens the gate and points out the way to heaven. Let us now briefly observe the effects it produces in those who do not receive it as the power of God into salvation. These effects are various, as tempers and circumstances vary, but they may all lead us to adopt the psalmist's exclamation, Lord, what is man? Many who have heard the gospel once or a few times will hear it no more. It awakens their scorn, hatred, and rage. They pour contempt upon the wisdom of God, despise His goodness, defy His power, and their very looks express the spirit of the rebellious Jews who told the prophet Jeremiah to his face, as to the word which you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not hearken to you at all. Those ministers who preach it are accounted as men who turn the world upside down, and the people who receive it, fools or hypocrites. The word of the Lord is a burden to them, and they hate it with a total hatred. How strongly is the disposition of their natural heart manifested by the confusion which often takes place in families where the Lord is pleased to awaken one or two in a house, while the rest remain in their sins. To profess or even be suspected of an attachment to the gospel of Christ is frequently considered and treated as the worst of crimes, sufficient to cancel the strongest obligations of family or friendship. Parents upon such a provocation will hate their children, and children ridicule their parents. Many find agreeable to our Lord's declaration that from, time, or from the time a sense of His love, love engaged their hearts to love Him again, their worst foes have been those of their own household, and that those who express the greatest love and tenderness for them before their conversion can now hardly bear to see them. So as he says, one response to the gospel is scorn, hatred, and rage. But he moves on. The bulk of a people will perhaps continue to hear, at least now and then. And to those who do, the Spirit of God usually at one time or the other bears testimony to the truth. Their consciences are struck. And for a season they believe and tremble. But what is the consequence? No man who has taken poison seeks more earnestly or speedily for an antidote than those do for something to stifle and smother their conviction. They run to company, to drink, to anything for relief against the unwelcome intrusion of serious thoughts. And when they succeed and recover their, from their former indifference, they rejoice as if they had escaped some great danger. The next step is to ridicule their own conviction. And next to that, if they see any of their acquaintance under like impression, to use every art and strain, every nerve, that they may render them as obstinate as themselves. 
for this purpose, they watch as a fallow for the bird, flatter, revile, tempt, threaten. And if they can prevail and are the occasion of hardening any in their sins, they rejoice and triumph, as if they accounted it their interest and their glory to ruin the souls of their fellow creatures. By frequent hearing, they receive more light. They are compelled to know whether they will or not that the wrath of God hangs over the children of disobedience. They carry a sting in their consciences and at times feel themselves most miserable and cannot but wish that they had never been born and that they had been dogs or toads rather than rational creatures. Yet they harden themselves still more. They affect to be happy and at ease and force themselves to wear a smile when anguish preys upon their hearts. They blaspheme the way of truth, watch for the faults of professors, and with a malicious joy publish and aggravate them. They see perhaps how the wicked die but are not alarmed. They see the righteous die but are not moved. Neither providences nor ordinances, mercies nor judgment can stop them, for they are determined to go on and perish with their eyes open rather than submit to the gospel. But they do not always openly reject the gospel truths. Some who profess to approve and receive them do thereby discover the evils of the heart of man, if possible, in yet a stronger light. They make Christ the minister of sin and turn His grace into licentiousness. Like Judas, they say, Hail, Master, and betray Him. This is the highest pitch of iniquity. They pervert all the doctrines of the gospel. From election, they draw an excuse for continuing in their evil ways and contend for salvation without works, because they love not obedience. They extol the righteousness of Christ, but hold it in opposition to personal holiness. In a word, because they hear that God is good, they determine to persist in evil. Lord, what is man? Thus willful and impenitent sinners go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. The word which they despise becomes to them a savor of death unto death. They take different courses, but are all traveling down the same pit. And unless sovereign mercy interposeth, they will soon sink to rise no more. The final event is usually twofold. Many, after they have been more or less shaken by the word, settle in formality. If hearing would supply the place of faith, love, and obedience, they would do well. But by degrees, they become sermon-proof. The truths which once, once struck them lose their power by being often heard, and thus multitudes live and die in darkness, though the light has long shone around them. Others are more openly given to a reprobate mind. Contempt of the gospel makes infidels, deists, and atheists. They are filled with the spirit of delusion to believe a lie. These are scoffers walking after their own lusts. For where the principle of true religion are given up, the conduct will be vile and abominable. Such people sport themselves with their own deceivings and strongly prove the gospel, uh, the truth of the gospel while they dispute against it. We often find that people of this caste have formerly been the subjects of strong convictions, but when the evil spirit has seemed to depart for a season and returns again, the last state of that person is worse than the first. It is not improbable that some of my readers may meet with their own characters under one or other of the views I have given of the desperate wickedness of the heart and its actings against the truth. May the Spirit of God constrain them to read with attention. Your case is dangerous, but I would hope not utterly desperate. Jesus is mighty to save. His grace can pardon the most aggravated offenses and subdue the most inveterate habits of sin. The gospel you have hitherto slighted, resisted, or opposed is still the power of God to salvation. The blood of Jesus upon which you have hitherto trampled speaks better things than the blood of Abel and is of virtue to cleanse those whose sins are scarlet and crimson and to make them white as snow. As yet, you are spared. But it is high time to stop, to throw down your arms of rebellion, and to humble yourselves at His feet. If you do, you may yet escape. But if not, know assuredly that wrath is coming upon you to the uttermost. And you will shortly find, to your unspeakable dismay, that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. These are the kind of sermons we need in these days. This is the kind of word that we need in these days. The truth of the word of God brought to bear. The American gospel of your best life now rejected. 
and the true gospel of Christ lifted up, the gospel of grace. I hope this was helpful to someone, a blessing to someone, maybe a, a, something that God may use in someone's life to open their own eyes to their self-righteousness, to their or a deceiving heart, deceptive ways, perhaps religiously so, that they will repent and come before God, a broken and humble sinner, that they'll be pleased to open the eyes of the blind, to raise the dead to life, to give uh, a new birth. I pray that that will be the case. Thank you.